love roller coasters. I love roller coasters, even though I'm older than I probably should. But I began to see as we would have to drive by Belmont Park every day on our way to our daughter's house, I began to see that roller coaster is an analogy for life, and in particular the Christian life. As a lot of our Christian life is experiences like the roller coaster, you know, we're slowly going up and then suddenly we, the bottom falls out and we drop like a stone. And, you know, what's interesting is that I would see people in line to pay $9 to ride on that rickety old roller coaster to be scared to death. And you say, what's up with that? Why, why would people do that? Well, roller coasters are great fun. And it's great to have the earth drop out from underneath you from time to time. Uh, but whether we're in an amusement park or we're experiencing a literal earthquake, and for those of you that know me, I've used these earthquake experiences. I've had several as an illustration of life sometimes. When you have movement beneath your feet that you're not anticipating, and everything that you believed was solid begins to move, and it messes with your head, how can the earth, bedrock, shift and change so much? And it begins to change your perspective on life. And what I've seen in my analysis of roller coasters and earthquakes is an analogy for the life of a Christian. There are trials that come into our lives that we're not anticipating. Trials come into our life where the earth moves under our figurative feet. And it's hard to deal with it mentally and emotionally. So my thesis for this morning, and because of issues that I have with my own brain right now, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you, okay? So I do this as much for myself as I'm doing it for you. But my thesis for this morning is that we learn the most in what we would call the worst of times. We learn the most in what we would call the worst. And I think you would agree with me that when all things are going well, we tend to think this is the way it should be. It should be this way. Everything should go well. There's a problem with that thinking, however. That's not the world that we live in. We have sin in our own hearts. And there's sin around us. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil that fight against us. It's not the way it should be, unfortunately, because we live in a fallen world. And trials are purposeful. So my thesis, again, is that we learn the most in what we would call the worst of times. So this morning, I've been crying out to God that he would take Psalm 31 and embed it into our hearts to the degree that the word changes us. 
the word of God, as I stand here and preach, I understand the awesome responsibility because the word of God can change us. It can mold us. It can change the way we think, specifically about problems. Do you believe that? You know, I, I did a little quick math. Most of you know I'm a retired engineer, so I think, you know, mathematics a lot. But if you've been a Christian for 40 years and you've just attended weekly sermons once a week, you've heard over 2,000 sermons. You ought to be up here. But you haven't meditated on the word enough to let it embed in your heart, take root, and grow fruit. Over 2,000 sermons. We ought to all be teachers at this point. So my prayer for today is that we will experience a hinge point in our Christian experience. A hinge point is where things change direction. It's like an elbow in an arm. It's a hinge point. And there is a hinge point embedded in the middle of this psalm, and I want us to see it and remember it. So please... Keep your Bibles open, uh, keep your pencils working, and let's see where the Lord takes us this morning. Now, I think we need to consider this as David's journal. Uh, some of you journal. I would encourage that. It takes a lot of time and discipline. I don't have it. I keep saying I'm going to do it. I do it once, and then I don't do it for a month, and then I do it, and then I don't. Journaling is a good thing, and David journaled after he went through experiences such as he's talking about in this psalm. This is a snapshot in David's life, most likely right after he experienced the rebellion of his son Absalom and one of his closest counselors that tried to overthrow the king and take over the kingdom. And that's likely when this was penned after that terrible experience. It's one thing to have uh, an enemy attack you. It's another thing to have a son attack you and a close friend attack you. And that's the experience that David uh, experienced when he wrote down this psalm. So it's exciting if you're at all interested in archaeology to find a document like this that was thousands of years old. And some of you may have seen Raiders, Nick, have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, the movie? No. Uh, never mind. Mike, you've not appropriately trained your child. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. In the movie Raiders, they, they took archaeology and made it cool. Uh, and, and that's the way we need to look at these, these psalms. These are written down and they're preserved for us for thousands of years and uncovered. What well, that's exciting. So in the Psalms, the Lord uses David to show us what to do and what not to do, what to think and what not to think when we're encountering trials. That's the beauty of the scriptures. They're balanced. We don't just see great things about these great characters of history. We get to see their sin, their weakness, their frailties, and that's what we have in this psalm, what to think, how to think, how not to think, especially when we encounter various trials and tribulations. 
Trials and tribulations, and the reason I had the passage, and I'll refer to it again in a minute, in Hebrews read, is because trials for the believer are purposeful. They are to train us. They are to hone us, to make us aware of the fact that God is working in our lives. So this morning, I want to introduce a concept to you of maintaining balance. Maintaining your balance. And that's why I've titled the sermon, Keeping Your Balance, or Maintaining Your Balance in Times of Testing. And again, I will tell you what I'm going to tell you, I will tell you, and then I'll tell you what I told you. Because I want us all to leave this place this morning changed by the Word of God. Otherwise, it's just an exercise in punching the clock one more time, getting another sermon, and not having it change us. How many times have we left church and somebody says to us two hours later, what was that sermon about? And we go, well, I don't know. You've been robbed. You've been robbed. So my hope is that the word of God will change us. Now, it's, it may be fun to terrorize ourselves on a roller coaster. Uh, but in events like roller coaster crises in our lives... We can lose perspective on the bigger picture. We lose scent. We lose the sight of our Heavenly Father during times of rapid descents or earthquakes. So I'm going to give you a picture because pictures are great, and this is how Jesus taught. Recall, if you will, the event where Peter and the disciples are in a boat. It was not a calm night. The waters were up and down and up and down and up and down. Jesus wasn't with them. But suddenly in the middle of the night, they see what they think is a ghost and he's walking towards them on the water. You all remember this. And Peter, who I love, by the way, he's the first guy to speak. And remember what he says. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. So Jesus does. And Peter gets out of the boat. And he begins to walk on the water. Hallelujah. But then, and you can look at this if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to do so. The passage is in Matthew 14, verse 30. But as he begins to walk on the water... It says that he contemplated the wind. Now, it's hard to contemplate the wind, but I think the indirect effect of the wind is what he saw, which were waves. Oddly enough, it seems that many of these fishermen didn't know how to swim. Go figure. But you remember what happened to him when he contemplated the wind is he began to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me! And Jesus did. But that's the picture that frames this message this morning. That Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our refuge. And what happened to Peter, he took his eyes off of Jesus, contemplated the wind, and began to sink. 
So as we're approaching a passage like this, and we won't have time um, to exegete the whole passage, so I won't even attempt to do that, but I always try to fly over a passage like this at about a 5,000-foot level, like an airplane surveying the turf and looking for a good landing zone that he can put the plane down. So let's fly over the sum very quickly at about the 5,000-foot letter. And as I've already said, David is going to show us exactly the correct and incorrect pattern of maintaining balance in this psalm. In verses 1 to 3, he indicates his confidence in the Lord. And by the way, as I've taught, actually I taught Psalm 31, but a completely different sermon uh, 10 years ago in this church. (laughs) I went back and found it in my files. And I looked at the sermon, I said, I missed the whole point. So now's my chance to undo whatever I did 10 years ago in your hearing. But he shows confidence in the Lord. Now, as I've said to you before about the Psalms, and I love the Psalms because the older I get, the more I recognize the need for us to be transparent with the Lord. Our good days, our bad days, whatever, he is our father. We can go to him with anything and we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy in a time of need. But you can always get your money's worth out of these Psalms in the first few verses, right? Hebrew writings typically are summarized in the beginning of the Psalm. So if you want to memorize a passage out of a Psalm, typically you can get the fruit, the majority of the benefit out of the first few verses. And that's what we have in verses 1 to 3. We sort of have the summary of what's going on in David's heart. In verse 4, if you look at your Bible and you can see verse 4, he recognizes and acknowledges that there is a problem. Now they say that the first step in getting help is to acknowledge that you have a problem, right? New Englanders have a hard time with this. You are Stoics. It's hard for you to confess, I have a problem. We're prideful about things like that. But David recognizes and acknowledges that he has a problem. In verses 5 to 8, in spite of acknowledging the issues, he declares his trust in the source of his help. He declares his trust in the source of his help. Now, something happens in verses 9 to 13. And we're going to go through this in somewhat painstaking detail this morning, but bear with me. There's fruit here. We just got to dig it up. 9 to 13, David loses it. In 9 to 13, he openly acknowledges or reveals that this is all just too much. He loses balance in contemplating his situation. He contemplates the wind. His grief becomes overwhelming and he's on the downside of the roller coaster. Okay? Now something happens beautifully in verse 14. Something happens which is a hinge point. It's the elbow of the psalm. He's headed down on the roller coaster. 
He's like an airplane pilot in a power dive. But he pulls up. And you can, you can almost feel the G-forces in a roller coaster or the G-forces in a small airplane that's in a power dive and then pulls up. And in verse 14, the psalmist says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. That's the hinge point of this psalm. I praise the Lord for the hinge point because verses 9 to 13, he was in rapid descent. The airplane was about to crash into the ground. In verses 15 to 18, he places specific requests upon God, recognizing his sovereign and gracious ability to deal with matters that he cannot handle. In verses 19 to 22, once again, David points out God's attributes and how he takes care of his own people. And in verses 23 and 24, David leaves us with advice as brothers to trust the Lord who will deal with our adversaries, who will deal with our crisis, who will deal with our issues or trials. Now, I've already hinted at this, but why do I love the Psalms so much? Uh, because I'm older. I, I find that for me, with the particular issues I have, I have to meditate for a while on a passage. So in my devotions, I don't read huge passages. I read small passages, and I read them over and over and over. Remember, was it last year or the year before I did the series on 1 John? And I, had, I asked everybody to read the epistle every day for the month that I was preaching that series. And I find that that's the way I can you know, squeeze the fruit or the nectar out of a passage is to focus on it. I've been focusing on Psalm 31 for a very long time. Because I'm thick-headed or because my heart has a wall that cannot be penetrated, I need to meditate. And I love the Psalms because they are the expressions of a true heart coming before God. It's an example for me. But every time I preach these Psalms, I recognize that there are three voices in the Psalm that we need to listen to, right? There are three voices in the Psalm. The first voice is obviously from a real man who is counseling himself on how to deal with real issues. So the first voice is the voice of a real man, and he's counseling himself similar to what Psalm 42, where David says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Now that's the King James Version, but that's the one that I memorized, so stick with it. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He's counseling himself, asking himself questions. Now, I know some of you well enough to know that you talk to yourselves all the time and probably too much, but there are times where we have to counsel ourselves. We have to grab a hold of our hearts and talk to them and say, wait a minute, remember who you are. More importantly, remember who God is. So I love it. The first voice is the voice of a real man in real problems in history. The second voice that we need uh, to hear out of this is the voice of the church because we all struggle this way. And so we hear the voice of David. We also hear uh, the voice 
of the church and we are given examples and tools to how we should deal with similar situations in our lives. But the third voice that we hear in this psalm is the voice of Jesus, our older brother. Because we have the voice of Jesus prophetically penned from the pen of David. Now sometimes I wonder about that. I'm sure you do too. How did the whole inspiration of scripture thing happen? The Holy Spirit giving David the words. But you see in verse 5. What do you see in verse 5? Look at your Bibles. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Where have we heard that before? Those were the last words recorded in, from the mouth of Jesus on the cross. So was David prophesying what Jesus was going to say or was Jesus quoting what David said? And I answered clearly, yes. Because it's, I don't understand how this all works. But we hear the third voice, which is the voice of Jesus. In verses 10 and 11, if you read verses 10 and 11 carefully, meditate on verses 10 and 11, doesn't that sound like Isaiah 53? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the voice of Jesus. Now, verse 15, <laughs> you know, if you don't have a life verse, <laughs> if, you, if you just don't have one, and Charlie and I talked the day before his first surgery. And I said, gee, I just spent the entire day with a young man in our church who was 15 years old, going through an uh, eight-hour surgery, very delicate surgery, teams of, of, of surgeons. Um, and we, we discussed Psalm 31, and in particular, verse 15. As something when they're rolling you down the uh, hospital corridor and you're on a gurney and you're looking at the ceiling tiles going by, it's good to put a text like this into your mind. My times, my life, my soul, everything about me is in your hands. If that doesn't bring you comfort in the midst of your trial, I don't know where you are spiritually. Right, Charlie? My times are in your hands. So the song is all about trusting God in every area of our lives while at the same time acknowledging the reality of pain. You know, Christians aren't supposed to go uh, to quote uh, Tiny Tim, tiptoeing through the tulips with their head in some proverbial cloud. They need to acknowledge the reality of pain and difficulty and yet at the same time trusting God. It's a balance. It's a balancing act. So to restate my thesis, as we look back over our lives, we have to acknowledge that oftentimes the best things were what appeared to be the worst things from our limited perspective. And again, that's why uh, I put Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. And for those of you who are in graduate school because of the trials you're going through, I would suggest that you take that passage and meditate on it. 
Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 13. The trials that we endure are not punishment. God does not work that way with his children. They're purposeful. They're intended to teach us something. They have beautiful, sweet nectar, even though there's a sting. Even though there's a sting. There is honey in those trials. So I'll give you one takeaway already, and then I'm going to give you a bunch more in a few minutes. When you're in trouble, do not focus on yourself, but focus on your rock. There's a hymn that I contemplated uh, singing this morning. It's Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. You know that hymn, Sherry? Look full in his wonderful face, for the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's a takeaway from this sermon this morning. So let's, let's quickly walk through several verses, and I'm aware of the time, and the clock runs faster here than anywhere else, so I'm sorry about that. Verses 1 to 3 is, again, the language of somebody who knows they're in trouble, and I wonder sometimes if, if we don't acknowledge our trouble because we're so fearful to do so. We cannot accept that there is danger all around us. It is like we've become numb to it. And I'm not only talking about physical trials here, or outward trials, or emotional trials. But I'm also talking about struggling with our own remaining sin. Some of us have given up on the fight. Uh, We've fallen so many times we don't even bother to fight anymore. Uh, In my ministry back in Rochester, I, I drink a lot of coffee with young men. We're blessed to have a lot of young men. And my job as the old guy, who's older than most of their grandfathers, uh, is to hit them upside the head with a four-by-four. Because if you're under 30, under 40, uh, a four-by-four seems to be the only appropriate tool for young men. But many of them are asleep in a railroad track. They have grown so comfortable on the railroad track that they think that this is a great place to take a siesta The train's coming, and it's going to run them over, but they are just fine and comfortable and don't want to be disturbed. Hopefully we're not like that. We're not like that. We have enemies that we fight against every day, the world, the flesh, and the devil. David's journal is reflecting on an honest evaluation of the reality of danger But he also knows that he rests in the fortress of God and he stands upon the rock that is Christ. Now look at verse 1c. In your righteousness, deliver me. In your righteousness. You see, it's not about, uh, I'm going to clean myself up so I can ask God to help. He's saying, my only hope is your righteousness. Not that I've been good, therefore I deserve your righteousness or your care or your love. 
That's not the way it works if you're a child of God. It's his righteousness that is the basis by which we can come and ask for help. David's word choice demonstrates where his confidence lies. Look at verse 2. Be a rock for, of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress. These words, these specific words imply stability. They imply a, a solid basis for us to stand on. A fortress is a place to hide when you're being attacked. A rock is something good to stand on as opposed to sand. These word choices are very specific. And David's comfort and ours in crisis is the immutability of God. God doesn't change. He is a rock. He's the same today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. Rocks are kind of like that. They just don't change every day. They're solid. And if you're being washed down a creek, I saw something in the news recently, and I can't remember where it was, but there was a flood, I think Maryland. And you see vehicles being washed down the road. And we used to go out to Arizona a lot in the desert, and it never rains there. But when it does rain, the rain comes down out of the mountains, and they have these things called washes, which enable the water to go someplace without taking houses out with it. But the power of a torrent is what David is relating to here. Is he's being washed down the stream, and he wants to, you know, you're going to grab a hold of the first solid thing that you see, whether it's a tree root or a rock. You're going to grab a hold of it as you're being washed down the stream in your crisis. It's a rock. And you see, David's comfort was in the attributes of God. It was in the immutability of God. That was his strength. That was his support. All of us, when we're in trial, and we all will be, and you all have been, as you look back on your life, in some major crisis. God's attributes define the reality of David's hope and he only is able to provide sufficient cover for us to rest in. So my question for all of us, including myself, is to ask, do we have that kind of relationship that we enjoy with God? That he is your rock. He is your fortress. He is your refuge in a time of crisis in your lives. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here. If you have your own Bible and you have a pencil, I'm going to suggest that you take verse 4 and where you see the word you, the object you, or pronoun you, put a one over it. Where you see me, put a two over it. And where you see the object they, put a three over it. Now if you look at the passage so far, verses one through four, you will see a balance between number one, number two, and number three. 
if you're using a pew Bible right now, I'd prefer you didn't write in it, but you know, if, if you can, write in your own Bible with a one, a two, and a three. And look at the first four verses and how balanced David is by his own words. By his own words. Now, the, I'm going to go back to this in a minute where you will see what happens to him in verses 9 to 13. See, I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. Um, but the interesting thing about this particular verse is the, the tense that's used is the aorist tense, which is past tense. So when David is in the midst of his crisis, when he's being washed down the torrent, he's recognizing that God has already dealt with the issue. You see, the interesting thing about God is that he's not like us. He doesn't dwell in time or via the constraints of time. He never changes. He's the same yesterday as he will be tomorrow. God exists above time. So in a sense, what gives David comfort in the midst of his crisis is he knows that God has already delivered him. It's already happened. You take me out of the net that they have laid and note that this is deeply personal. And again, I will ask you again and again and again, if you do not have a personal relationship with this God, you cannot get any stability out of this passage. You remember when your children were little and they would, they would get hurt? Maybe mommies have experienced this more than daddies, but I can remember my little daughter in particular running up, daddy, 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 you know, because she put her finger in the hinge point of the door and, and you know, squished her finger or whatever a crisis was for a little child. And they come running up to you and they come running up to you crying for help because A, they believe that you can help. Because when your children are little, they think you're you know, like invincible and ultimately wise and you have all the answers to every. Right? It's not until their next age that they begin to recognize that we don't. But you see, if you didn't have a relationship with that child, if the child didn't have a relationship with you, they wouldn't come running to you. But last week in the evening session, uh, John said, that the beauty of our relationship with God is that we can call him Daddy, Abba. If you don't have that kind of relationship, you're going to look at this whole thing and say, there's nothing here for me. Abba. Jesus says that unless you are converted and become like little children, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3. Some of you read John Piper. He's a modern day author. One of the few people that are alive that we read. Um, most of them are all dead guys, right? That we read. But anyways, um, John's uh, philosophical statement of what he calls Christian hedonism. His statement is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You heard that before? 
C.H. Spurgeon, who outranks John Piper by several stripes, he said this, Our statement of confidence in God during these times of testing and adversity is the principal method of glorifying him. Sometimes when we're older and we don't feel as active as we once were, we wonder, how can I glorify God? How can I bring glory to God? It's by trusting him when you don't know what's going on, when the earth is moving under your feet, when you're on the downside of the roller coaster, when your airplane is in a power dive. Trust him. Now, verse 5. Again, we've already quoted, uh, that said that Jesus uh, uttered these words at the end of his life on this earth is the conclusion of his great work in the incarnation. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me. Again, past tense. Past tense. David said this like it had already happened. Past tense. Oh Lord, faithful God. And if you want to go back to the scripture where Jesus uttered that in the cross, look at Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Now many of our uh, great fathers of the faith, like Martin Luther, died saying these things. Polycarp died this way. Melanchthon, who was Luther's understudy, died this way. Many of the saints that have gone before us died this way with this on their lips. Into your hand I commit my spirit. These are great words and rich words that can bring comfort to our own souls and to those that are around us. Now, in verses 6 through 8, David acknowledges the reality of the situation, yet he continues to trust. But I want to rush on to verses 9 to 13. I can't believe it. Um, well, just bear with me for a few minutes more. 9 to 13. Now he begins to meditate on the problem and not so much on God. As you look at verses 9 to 13, and you think about what I had you do over in verse 4, was to look, circle the I's, the you's, and the they's. In 9 to 13, there's very little you. It's mostly I. He's lost his balance. And the temptation of all trials is that they begun, they begin to take over our lives and they become the center of our lives and they become the definition of who we are. I'm the one who was abandoned by my spouse. I'm the one who lost his spouse and now wakes up in the middle of the night and they're not there. And I wake up every day and I feel on the bed, and they're not there. I've said this over and over again, that Judy and I lead a small group that's all widows and widowers. <clears throat> and it's tough. Right? And we have one person in our small group who is not a widow, but whose husband abandoned her. You know anything about this? 
And we've all concluded that it was harder for her than it was for the ones that lost their spouse to death. They were abandoned. If some that have cancer and you wake up every morning and you have cancer. And the temptation is to lose balance and let the trial itself become who you are. And we cannot let that happen. Now, some of us live in constant pain. It's hard. You can't even walk upstairs. Right, Mary? Constant pain. It's hard not to let that become the center of your life. Some of us are just dealing with the effect of old age. And you have to deal with constant loss in your life. You remember what you once were and you look and you say, what happened? I feel like I've been hit by a truck. We cannot let this become the center of our life. Now here's a diagnostic You can do a self-diagnostic. Monitor your own prayers. Monitor your own prayers. Well, that sounds weird. Tape record them if you have to. And see if your own prayers are filled with I, 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 my, 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 me, 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 me. And if they are, you're in the downside of the roller coaster. Your airplane's in a power dive. And you need to pull up. You need to pull up. And as I said before, verse 14 is the hinge point. Uh, We see where David pulls up and begins to get his eyes back off of the wind, back off of the water, and onto Jesus. And then verse 15, our life verse. Let us remember this one verse today. If you don't take anything out of here today, remember my times are in thy hands, O Lord. That is our life verse for today. And then in verse 16, make your face to shine upon your servant. David continues to use anamorphisms. Uh, Anamorphisms are where we apply uh, physical attributes to a a spirit God like hands or face. God doesn't have a face. He doesn't have hands. But it's helpful when we're coming at our daddy, our heavenly father, to have those things. Well, let me give you a couple of takeaways and we'll uh, be done for the morning. So here's a couple of takeaways. I'm going to give you six takeaways Uh, from this uh, meditation this morning. Uh, The psalm uh, may be considered messianic. Um, uh, Contained herein are the words of Jesus, our prophet. Uh, It's a messianic psalm. Number two, the earthly, uh, in his earthly sojourn, that is Jesus, he was the perfect man, uh, the last Adam. We'll talk about that some other day. Uh, lived within the constraints of a man, lived dependent upon the Holy Spirit, didn't exercise his own deity in his incarnation, and therefore can enter into our grief. He was acquainted with grief. He is our priest. So it's a messianic psalm. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And thirdly, although he is our king, 
he humbly accepted not just the humility, uh, humiliation of manhood, but the rejection of the very people marked out by God. He's our king, prophet, priest, and king. Fourthly, the Son of Man faced the awful abyss of the cross. God not just turning his back, if you will, but pouring out his infinite wrath on him. Scripture says that he became sin for us that we might become righteousness in him. What a great exchange, eh? He became sin so that we might become righteous. That which was corrupt became holy. That which was holy became corrupt. It's amazing. Now, number five is we face our personal crises and we will or we are. We cannot allow it to become the center of our lives. If we do, we will lose our balance walking with our Lord. Judy and I just signed up for a life lock because somebody got a hold of one of our emails or something and uh, what the trials can do is identity theft. And we need a Christian life lock to prevent identity theft. Trials can rob us of our identity. You are not defined by the trial. You are defined as a son of God or a daughter of God. You cannot lose your identity in your trials. And sixthly and finally, because of how he suffered in our place, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your focus upon Jesus and not upon yourself. We will only find disappointment looking at ourselves or our situation and or our lives will be characterized by routine instability. If you find in your personal Christian experience that you're up and down like a roller coaster, it's probably because you're not fixing your eyes on Jesus. You're fixing your eyes on yourself. And that's easy to do. This is not easy. But we cannot let our identity be stolen by the crisis. Who are you? Who are you? There was a great hymn, and, and I looked, and it's not in our hymn book. But I, I'll close on this hymn. My Times Are in Thy Hands, written by William Lloyd in 1824. Some of you may know it. I'd sing it, but I don't want to ruin your day. My times are in thy hand. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in thy hands, whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best may seem to thee. My times are in thy hands. Why should I doubt or fear? My father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. My times are in thy hands. Jesus the crucified, those hands my cruel sin had pierced, are now my guard and guide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.
We know that your word is true. Uh, Lord, I pray that that uh, which you would have for each one of us personally uh, would be derived as a sweetness this morning. That you would draw us closer to yourself. Help us to keep our eyes upon you in the midst of the fiery trials that we go through. Lord, uh, I pray for every person here uh, that as we face uncertain futures and difficult times, pain and separation and loneliness and personal financial issues, joblessness, all of these things that can rob us of our comfort. Lord, I pray that you would apply your Holy Spirit as a salve to our hearts. Fix us, Lord. Take us. My times are in thy hands. In Jesus' name, amen.